This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast, where host Amber Cullum and her guests delve into hard truths and the unwavering grace of God while journeying in the kingdom of God here on earth. Listen every week at graceenoughpodcast.com or on your favorite listening app. With over 500,000 products to choose from, christianbook.com brings everything Christian right to your fingertips always at great values. Find it now at christianbook.com. This is Quick to Listen, where we set aside hashtags and hot takes to discuss a major cultural event. On today's show, Juan Martinez joins us to talk about the political priorities of Latino evangelicals. Thanks for us joining us this week. I'm Morgan Lee, Associate Digital Media Producer here at Christianity Today. I'm with my co-host and our Editor-in-Chief, Mark Galley. Good afternoon. How's it going? Good. I am following the dictates of Southwest Magazine. I was just on a flight back from warm and sunny Dallas, where it was 73 when I left, to land in a drizzly and 47-degree Chicago. The title on their magazine this month is Embrace the Elements. All right. So I'm trying to do that. It's a nice euphemistic way to talk about <laughs> changing climates. Exactly. All right. Tell us more about Juan. Juan Martinez currently serves as professor of Hispanic studies and pastoral leadership at the best theological seminary in the... Oh, it's the one I happen to have gone to as well, but he's at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary. He is the author of a number of books, most recently, The Story of Latino Protestants in the United States. Welcome, Juan, or I should say, bienvenidos. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you today um, here from uh, 72 degrees, Southern California. Uh, just and just so, rub it in. Go ahead. Yes, yes. We're, we're really suffering. Well, well, it's actually, it dropped 10 degrees. So we're really, we're, we're wondering about how, if we're going to go into a cold streak here pretty quick. Yes. <laughs> While we're all kind of doing some hand-wringing here about the weather, it is also Election Day, which is actually something that we are going to kind of discuss on the show as well, and a heads up to all of our listeners that, no, we do not know the results of the midterms. And so I'm sure there's going to be lots of emotion about there, but this is not exactly going to cover that head on. We're taking the big picture, the long view. Exactly, which is something that we do pretty frequently on the show. So. Yes, as I acknowledged earlier, we are recording today's episode on Election Day, a day which I'm sure is bringing many a sense of consternation. While elections often bring increased attention to white evangelicals whose votes and voice often play a significant role in national elections, today we wanted to understand the political priorities of Hispanic evangelicals. So I wanted to make one note about terms. We're going to get into this in a couple minutes, but we do know there is a distinction between the terms Latino and Hispanic. In this podcast, we are going to be using them interchangeably, but we will also be talking about why there are these different terms in a couple minutes. Two years ago, in 2016, the Latino voter turnout rate was 48%, more or less the same number as 2014, as Pew Research Center reported. As they summarized last year, they said, quote, Due largely to demographic growth, the number of Latino voters grew to a record 12.7 million in 2016, up from 11.2 million in 2012. Even so, the number of Latino non-voters, those eligible to vote who do not cast a ballot, or 14 million in 2016, 
was larger than the number of Latino voters, a trend that extends back to each presidential election since 1996. According to recent data from the Billy Graham Center Institute at Wheaton College and LifeWay Research, 41% of Hispanics with evangelical beliefs voted for Trump. What were the top issues that influenced how Hispanics with evangelical beliefs voted? Well, 19% said it was improving the economy, 14% said helping those in need, and 14% said it was a candidate's position on immigration. So we realize that that's a lot of stats, um, but we did want to give you a sense of kind of where these political priorities have been represented in the past. And so today on Quick to Listen, we'll spend some time learning about the political values and priorities of this community. All right, Mark, before we talk to Juan, I did want to know if you had any gut check of when you looked through some of these numbers um, and any reactions that you might have to them. The main reaction was how similar and how different Latino Protestants are from uh, white evangelicals. I'm very glad we have Juan on because he's going to have a more nuanced understanding than I ever could. And I, I just want to know more about that. I spent, I think as I've told listeners, I Spent four and a half years in Mexico City as a pastor of an English-speaking church, so I have a special affinity for Hispanics in our culture just because of that experience. So anytime this topic comes up, I pay extra special attention. I mentioned earlier this data that was from the Billy Graham Center Institute and LifeWay Research, and they actually had some more research that came out this morning, and that research said that half of Hispanic evangelicals support a reduction in legal immigration, and that half of Hispanic evangelicals also support the Trump administration's effort to reduce illegal immigration. And when I saw those numbers, it was just another reminder to me that this is a community that has some really diverse views and that maybe we've done a poor job when we try to overgeneralize about what's going on or about what the, yeah, the concerns and political priorities are. And I will just say, too, I don't have a lot, a strong sense of this community's history in the United States. So it's awesome that Juan can come on and give us some of this history and context to speak a little bit more in a nuanced way about this. Juan, the first place that I wanted to start actually was about labels and how we're talking about people who we either call Hispanic or Latino or Latinx. And maybe you can give us a sense of where these terms come from and which ones you find, or which ones you find best to represent the community. The terms are all complicated. Uh, in fact, Pew did a study that most people that would fit under these categories, assuming that they're interchangeable, would not e- use any of them. Uh, the majority of people would use country of origin as as terms. So they would call themselves Mexican-American or Puerto Rican before they would call themselves Hispanic, Latin, or Latinx. That's part of the, the complexity. These are terms that are used by the broader community to put everybody under a broad label. But it's not necessarily the labels that the average person that fits under that umbrella would use for themselves. Yeah, let me just add to that. That's the same with the truth of the word evangelical. Actually, relatively few people would have first identified themselves as evangelical. More often, they would say they're born again, or they would say they're a Lutheran, or they're free church or something. So I think sometimes we scholars and other people who think nationally or internationally tend to are more attracted to these terms than the actual people themselves. Again, that becomes part of the difficulty. Now, you know, the terms have histories, uh, Hispanic tracing back to Spain and to the countries that, that were, you know, that, that were created out of Spanish colonization, the Americas, and uh, Latino or Latinx coming from the French attempt to bring Latin America together. In fact, the first time Latin America as a concept 
was used was in French. So both of them have ties to uh, European colonialism in the Americas, and, and both have been used at times over against each other. People will argue. I mean, there's theses and dissertations and books published as to why one or the other. And then Latinx is because Spanish is a gendered language, and it's a way of trying to deal with the complexities of gender. I will use them interchangeably, noting always that all of them are complex and none of them are fully helpful. And we are still looking for terms, and maybe we won't ever find a single term uh, that easily describes us all. All right. Well, let's kind of talk about the Latino population a little bit broadly at first. You were saying that the majority of Latinos are of Mexican descent. What are some of the other countries and places that the majority of American Latinos are from? Remember that when the United States took the land from Mexico, the Southwest, there was 100,000 people who had been Mexican citizens that were made American citizens as part of the, 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 the peace treaty after the United States invaded Mexico. So when we talk about almost two-thirds, 63 to 65% of all people that would fit under the umbrella Latino have heritage to Mexico, and that tends to include, even though many of the people from the, from the traced lineage to the time before this was part of the United States don't often feel comfortable being called Mexican-American. In fact, the people of northern New Mexico would call themselves Hispanic-Americans to try to differentiate because they were in that region, or their ancestors were before Jamestown was uh, was uh, established. Santa Fe, New Mexico is older than Jamestown. So, so within that larger picture, you've got this group of people, and about 10%, myself included, can trace, of, of all Latinos in the United States, can trace at least part of their lineage back to a time before this was part of the United States. So that's also one segment that usually does not get counted or acknowledged at all. In fact, Latinos are usually seen only as immigrants. So between those and the people who do trace their lineage several generations, sometimes back, but back to Mexico at some point, is almost two-thirds. Then you have the Central Americans, who are, uh, as a group, one of the more recent immigrants, which are uh, 12 to 15 percent, again, who's counting, how it's being counted. Puerto Ricans, who are, we have to remember are U.S. citizens, so they're not immigrants, so though they're, they're called immigrants when they come from the island to the United States, so they were United States citizens before, about 10, 11 percent. Then you have smaller communities, the Cubans, the Dominicans. The Colombians is, is the largest of the smaller groups. And then you have a mixture of others uh, to fill out the 100%. So the single largest group, Mexican, Mexican-Americans, including those who trace their lineage to the Southwest, and then 12 to 15% Puerto Rican and also Central Americans, then Cubans, Dominicans, and Colombians, and then the rest. I would say that one of the big generalizations that we might think of when we think of the Latino community is that the majority are Catholic. Obviously, we are a publication that tries to explore evangelicals, though. And so what can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what evangelicalism looks like in these communities, where it came from, or when it started growing? Many people in the Spanish-speaking world when they, uh, that, are, that would fit under the Protestant realm, when they're asked what they are, they would call themselves evangelico, or cristiano, but evangelico is broader than evangelical because it includes movements and peoples that would not fit under the American 
a normal, in other words, their denominations or churches would not be part of, for example, a National Association of Evangelicals. They might be somewhere else. That becomes one of the, the things that is important to know just to start. Now, approximately, depending on who's counting anywhere from 20 to 25 percent of the Latino population would fit under the broad category of Protestant, and most of those would accept the term evangelico, though a significant percentage of them would not accept the term evangelical. About uh, three quarters would fit under the category of either evangelical or Pentecostal, about one quarter would fit under the category of traditional historic denominations, mainline denominations of that 22 to 25% of the population that is Protestant. So about 75%, and of that 75%, mostly Pentecostal, the single largest group of uh, Latino Protestants, Evangelicals, or Assemblies of God. The second largest group is Southern Baptists. Then after that is uh, other Pentecostal groups, Church of God, Cleveland, Tennessee, the Apostolic Faith Church, which is a oneness Pentecostal. They baptize in the name of Jesus, so it would not be considered evangelical, though they are Pentecostal. They come out of Azusa Street, but they don't baptize in uh, Trinitarian. They baptize in the name of Jesus. And the only of the historic denominations that is in the larger groups of Latinos is the United Methodists. The vast majority of the large denominations, including also the Seventh-day Adventists, which would also not be considered part of the National Association of Evangelicals, but they're one of the largest Latino groups, uh, Protestant groups. So the numbers for Latino Protestants look very different than the Protestant population at large in the United States. So that the single largest denomination, the Assemblies of God amongst Latinos, is not one of the top denominations in in the U.S. and of, of the larger ones. The Southern Baptists are, but Church of God, Apostolic uh, Faith uh, in Jesus Christ, uh, the United Pentecostal Church, the Seventh-day Adventists, these are not denominations that normally would be seen at the at, at, in the big denominations, yet they're the ones where the Latinos are. The Hispanics who identify with Protestant denominations like Methodist, uh, Presbyterian, and such, when we think of those, when we use those terms in the U.S. now, they're generally aligned with Mainline churches are considered more liberal than evangelicals. My impression is that the mainline representations in Latin America, Presbyterian, Methodist, Congregationalists, etc., they tend to be more conservative than their American counterparts. Is that a correct impression? That is correct. I mean, you will find you will find amongst Latin American historic to use U.S. terms, historic denominations, you will find churches that would look like their more liberal counterparts here in the states. But for example. The National Presbyterian Church of Mexico, which is the single largest Presbyterian church in Mexico, broke its uh, fraternal links with the United Presbyterian, uh, with, uh, with uh, PCUSA here in the United States because of the stances that, that the PCUSA has taken on, for example, the issue of homosexuality. They are the single largest Presbyterian denomination in Mexico, but they have no formal relationship anymore because they used to with the Presbyterian Church in the United States of America. Okay. So just to give you an example, yeah. but you will find Presbyterians that would, in Latin America, that might agree with some of those positions. Okay. Are the majority of people that are part of these churches people that grew up Catholic and then and then converted? In other words, these churches did a lot of outreach and um, missions and engagement with this community, or are these churches that people have grown up in for years and maybe even went back to if, you know, if they are are immigrants who are part of these churches, that they were part of those denominations back in their home countries? 
you'll have both in, in increasing numbers. So that if you had asked this question 40, 30 or 40 years ago, by far, all of them would have been converts, almost all. I am a fifth generation Latino Protestant. That is an extremely rare occurrence. My great-great-grandmother became a believer, a Protestant believer in South Texas around 1900, but that is extremely rare. To this date, a large percentage of of, uh, Latino Protestants are converts from usually a nominal Catholicism. In other words, they were baptized as children, as infants, but they had no real connection to Catholic faith or very weak one, more of a cultural Catholicism. Now, in the last 25, 30 years, as Protestantism, and especially Pentecostalism and Neo-Pentecostalism has grown in Central America and Puerto Rico in particular, then that has changed. So that especially from those regions, a growing percentage of people that come to the United States were already Protestant when they came. And then you've got a small but growing percentage of those like myself who are U.S. born. I'm sixth generation U.S. born Latino. Uh, Like I said, on my mother's side, they were here before it was part of the United States or in South Texas. And then also fifth generation Protestant Latino. I'm wondering also with regards to the evangelical Latino population, how would you describe it with regards to age and education level and country of origin? Most studies have demonstrated that that Latinos are younger than the U.S. population at large, uh, eight to 10 years younger, educationally as a whole. And again, you'll find large pockets that are different. But as a whole, our educational levels are lower than the U.S. population. And it depends by cultural group. For example, if you look at at Cuban-Americans, they tend to be fairly highly educated. Uh, You look at Central Americans, most of the kinds of people that have come have been fleeing violence, and most of them have have come from the, if you will, the, the lower class, working class people, so they tend to have less education. The South Americans, the Cubans, tend to come from middle and upper middle class people, so they tend to have more education coming. The educational levels uh, of Latinos even born in the United States lag behind African-Americans, lag behind the white population, lag way behind the Asian-American populations. Just talking about the different tensions that kind of exist within this community, we know at this point, obviously, it's not monolithic at all. And so what are the, some of the things that they debate amongst themselves? One has to remember that the various Latino groups that I've mentioned have a different kind of experience in relationship to the United States, so that most Mexican-American people have a narrative about the United States taking the land from Mexico. Most Americans would never even remember and probably have never heard that the Southwest really was part of Mexico. But most Mexican-Americans would know that very well. They have a different way of looking at the United States. Cuban-Americans, for example, that historically were well, well received after the Cuban Revolution and Castro takeover tend to have a very, very highly positive view because of their own experience again. They were well received, they were received as refugees, they found open arms in the United States. So they tend to have a very different way of looking at the United States. And because they've never had to deal with the undocumented issue, tend to have a different way of thinking about that issue. The Puerto Ricans have never had to deal with the undocumented issue because they're U.S. citizens. They have now they have uh, suffered prejudice. They've suffered a lot of the injustices that many Latinos have, but they have not had to deal with the issue of migration as far as documentation. 
most Dominicans came in legally because, and I, we could spend a lot of time talking about how that happened. So most of them have not dealt with the issue of the documents. So that in the Northeast, for example, the United States, where you have the strong historically Puerto Rican Dominican populations, you, the issue of the undocumented is a much smaller issue than in the Southwest, where 25% of all the undocumented people in the United States are in California, and another what 15% are in Texas. So that creates a whole different kind of conversation, depending on how important that is to your own background, how it is, you know, uh, were you ever a part of this? So that it would not be surprising to hear that the average Cuban-American Protestant or Catholic or secular would tend to have a, a stronger, if you will, limit immigration kind of perspective than the average Mexican-American. That's as much about historical experience as it is about anything else. So that the Spanish of northern New Mexico might have a more limiting concept about immigration than the Central Americans that just came within the last 10 years. Given that those starkly different social and historical settings, I mean, is it very helpful for us to do national surveys of what <laughs> Latinos think about X, Y, or Z? I mean, are, are we mixing apples and oranges in a lot of ways? We are at times, and, and one of the things, and this is, uh, I mean, Pew has started to to divide this up, Latino decisions, which I think does a very good job, they tend to make these distinctions more clearly, but they haven't, they haven't broken out where people are quoting them, though I think they're doing ex excellent work in these kinds of things so that we are able to understand, for example, why Florida right now, um, today's election day, and, and so people will know what had happened already in Florida, uh, the fact that because of the hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico, and because Puerto Ricans are U.S. citizens, a lot of middle and upper middle caste Puerto Ricans are now living in Florida because they were able to leave the island. And so now the Latino vote of Florida may, in fact, trend slightly democratic. Well, there, if you just say Latino vote, it doesn't differentiate between the historic Cuba, Cuban American community that the younger generations have more a tendency, a little more tendency toward the Democratic Party, but the old generation. Uh, complete Republican, where the, the Puerto Ricans would tend to be more democratic. And so if you just say Latino vote, you'll go, what happened? But if you differentiate, then you understand what happened. And on top of that, the, the how Latino, we've been, and we're talking about Latino evangelicals, how they've tended to be part of the, of the political process. One of the things that we have to remember is that in Latin America, Protestants could not be part of the political process until fairly recently. Uh, Latin American countries were historically Catholic, and they were legally Catholic. In other words, it was the official religion. And so Protestants were often very much marginalized. Then Mexican-American Protestants in the United States, uh, remember, it wasn't that long ago that voter suppression in the Southwest was not quite as strong as in the Southeast with African-Americans, but it went in the same kind of direction. So that a lot of Latino Protestants saw themselves on the fringe of society and saw no value in voting because we were marginalized. And so, again, you know, one of the reasons there isn't a heavy voting record, we have been historically marginalized as a people, especially those of Mexican-American descent, which are the single largest group. And so that you have much higher voting tendencies amongst the Cuban-Americans than you do amongst the Mexican-Americans. 
there was a the book that you wrote earlier this year, Juan, you talk about six major periods of history in American Latino Protestantism. And I'm wondering if you can just kind of briefly tell us what those six major periods are. I'm sure you've talked about them a little bit already. Yes. Well, basically what I do in that is that I try to trace how it is Latinos in general became part of the United States and, and uh and then how that is affected Protestantism and, and Latino Protestants. So that at the time of the U.S. takeover of the Southwest, 1848, there's about 100,000 people that uh, that stayed in the United States. And by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo that ended the war, these people were granted U.S. citizenship. Uh, Protestant missionaries, mostly Methodists and, and Presbyterians, started working amongst them in northern New Mexico and in central Texas, which is where the large communities were. The other, the places that are now the big Latino communities were little backwaters. L.A. was a little tiny backwater at that point. And so there were converts. So the, in that very first group of people, most of the Protestants, Latino Protestants, were converts. And most of them were either Methodists, Presbyterian, or if in Texas, Baptists. And that's through, through the end of the 19th century. At the beginning of the 20th century, several things happened. One is the Sousa Street, the Pentecostal revival here in L.A., but also the Mexican Revolution, 1910, and World War I, 1914, when the United States entered, the Mexican Revolution pushed Mexicans north because of fleeing the war, but the United States wanted the cheap labor because young men were going to war. And so uh, both liked this, but then when the, uh, and so Mexicans came across the border freely. In fact, my dad's family would cross the border regularly some of them were born in the States, some were born in Mexico, because that's just the way it was then. But then when the Great Depression came, then there was an anti, the first strong anti-Mexican reaction was to say, well, we're going to, uh, we got to get rid of the Mexicans. And people were deported even if they were born in the United States, because you were Mexican, period. It didn't matter where you were born, you were Mexican. And it was a pretty ugly uh, deportation. So you've had these early movements in the 19th century, early 20th century Pentecostalism starts. It's not going to be noted, though the, the, the Pentecostal groups are going to be starting out of Azusa and all, are going to have a strong Latino presence from early on, the Assemblies of God. The apostolic faith in Christ Jesus, that, that is again the one I mentioned, the baptized in the name of Jesus, is born out of Azusa Street here in Southern California and then goes to Mexico. And part of it because of deportation, part of it because people live transnational lives. So then they're pushed out. Meanwhile, 1898, the United States took Puerto Rico and Cuba, Guam and the Philippines from Spain, again by war. Puerto Rico became a colony of the United States. There's going to end up being later on migration from Puerto Rico, and that's going to happen a little later. But then Puerto Rico, Protestants go into Puerto Rico to evangelize, and those are going to be the, the focal points of people that are going to come later. World War II, the Bracero movement, again, the United States needs labor. And so it draws on Mexico. Massive numbers of people are encouraged to come to the United States to fill the needs of the soldiers that are going to war. And they come legally. They have very few rights. It's, a, it's not a really pretty situation, but that, that lasts from 1943 through 1965. And what happens with these, this group of people is that Protestant churches of various stripes are serving them, helping them, evangelizing them. Some of them are going back to Mexico, which is their intention for the most part, and they're taking the Protestant gospel with them back into Mexico. And so 
a lot of. Wow, I didn't um, realize that. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah no, this is a very significant, a, a significant number of churches that are established in Mexico are established by braceros that are going back to Mexico mm-hmm. who have had a conversion experience in the United States. My dad became a pastor toward the end of the Bracero movement. I remember as a little boy seeing our South Texas church filled with Braceros as, you know, our little church was doing ministry amongst the Braceros in South Texas. In 1965, you get the very important Immigration Act that changes the face of the United States because it no longer uses national quotas that favored only Northern Europe. It finally allows uh, more openly Asian migration, which, again, you remember there had been a Chinese Exclusion Act. There had been all of these very racist attitudes toward migrants if they weren't Northern European. And so in 1965, that changes again. About that same time, the Cuban Revolution has happened, and you've got the Cuban migration. Now, these people, there was already a fair number of educated, because they were more educated, there was a number of educated pastors and leaders so that, um, especially amongst the Presbyterians, the Methodists, and to lesser extent, the disciples in Christ, a lot of Latino leadership through most of the middle of, uh, middle and last part of the 20th century is going to be Cuban. In fact, one of the most well-known Latino Protestant theologians, Justo Gonzalez, is Cuban. That name is known in theological circles because of his history uh, his history of Christianity, his history of Christian thought. In most seminaries, people have read him. But again, he's part of this migration. So Cubans send out educated pastors, people with, with the equivalent of MDiv degrees. And so they change the face of kind of mainline Protestantism. So you've got this new flow. Then because of the wars in Central America, you start the, the Central Americans start coming, especially through the 70s and the 80s, up to the 1986 um, amnesty uh, law which people seem to forget was signed by Ronald Reagan and supported strongly by Ronald Reagan, which created a different kind of environment. Then in the 1990s, the Clinton administration, you know, people complain about uh, Donald Trump's border wall. The person who started building that border wall was Bill Clinton. The attitude toward the immigrants starts changing toward more negative. During the 1990s, you have a number of laws that are basically anti-immigrant into the early 2000s. And so the the environment starts changing even as the population is growing, and even as the Protestant population is growing very rapidly. So by the early 2000s, you've got national Latino Protestant organizations. I mean, the most well-known, the National Hispanic uh, Christian Leadership Conference, led by Sammy Rodriguez, child of Puerto Ricans. Then you've got, you know, Esperanza, Esperanza USA, again, led by a Puerto Rican, Luis Cortez in Philadelphia. And now you've got the National uh, Latino Evangelical Coalition, led by Gabriel Salguero, also of Puerto Rican descent. Hmm. And, and there's a logic to this. Remember that Mexico is the most Catholic country in the world, by numbers and by percentages. So that if you look at the Latino Protestant community of the United States, it's strongly it doesn't reflect by size the size of the the backgrounds of the Latino community. In other words, it's not that two-thirds of Latino Protestants are of Mexican descent. They're much stronger. They're, they're Almost half of Puerto Ricans, even on the island, are Protestant. 30 to 45 percent of, of, of Central Americans are Protestant, where only 9 percent of Mexicans are Protestant. So the, you tend to see those kinds of numbers, so that uh, Puerto Ricans are— 
nationally strongly overrepresented to the size of the, of the larger Latino community because they're large in the Latino Protestant community. Central Americans are overrepresented again because they're large in the Hispanic or Latino Latinx Protestant community by percentages larger than the Mexicans. And so you've got you've got these very interesting, very different looks within the community, uh, within the Protestant evangelical community than within the larger community. This episode is brought to you by the Grace Enough podcast. I am its host, Amber Cullum. Each week, I sit down with a guest to discuss hard truths and the unwavering grace of God they've experienced while journeying in God's kingdom here on earth. You'll hear from guests like Jen Wilkin, Jamie Ivey, Andy Crouch, and Scott McKnight. Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com. What was the cause uh, or the causes of post-Reagan political policy wanting to restrict immigration more? Those who have studied it, and, and uh, that's not my area of expertise, though I've, I've worked in migration studies a bit, there was a strong backlash as the community started growing, as the community started gaining political power. And, you know, one of the first places was here in California. Uh, there was some very anti-immigrant propositions in the 1990s. Uh, that's changed. But it was, it, I think it was part of the growing pains, part of, okay, how do we deal with this new reality? And so there was a, there was a backlash. And then that worked its way out, and people said, oh, Latinos aren't half bad for California. In fact, they're driving a fair percentage of the, the economy uh, as a workforce. And so that ended up changing. But I think you're seeing that same kind of spirit and attitude in other parts of the country that California already faced. California faced it in, in the 80s and the 90s. Other places are facing it today as, again, the changing realities uh, demographics, because it's not, we have to remember that two-thirds of all Latinos are born in the United States, something we also forget, because we we tend to focus on Latinos as immigrants, and we tend to forget that Latinos are two-thirds U.S. born. Also, because Latinos are minoritized, for example, my ancestors were in the United States before Donald Trump's ancestors were in the United States, yet I will always be considered a fourth, fifth, sixth generation Latino. My kids will be considered sixth generation Latinos. Donald Trump is not considered a third generation German. He's nor because his background is Northern European, he's just an American. I will never be just an American. I will always be counted by generations in the United States where Donald Trump will never be counted by generations in the United States. Just to give that example, even though my people were here before his people were here. So as I'm sure you're aware, Juan, among white evangelicals, there has been some hostile division since the election among those who despise Trump and those who voted for him and still continue to support him. Is this the case, too, that you're seeing among Hispanic evangelicals? I'll use Southern California because I work amongst, uh, you know, amongst pastors, uh, Latino pastors here all the time. So I'll just use this, this environment. The issues that convinced uh, a fair number of Latino Protestants to vote for Trump. The, the kinds of issues that, that created that decision had to do with how we look at, especially, in, 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 and most Latinos will tend to be 
socially conservative on issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, but will tend to be social liberals on issues like education and immigration and other kinds of issues, so that we have tended to be divided in how do we spread the vote? How, how do we deal with that? Because that has been who we have been historically. I mean, this is not new. It just now stands out because we're, we're a larger percentage of the voting bloc. But we've been struggling with this. Those of us who have voted for years have struggled with this because the Democrat-Republican way that this is broken out doesn't fit us well. Because we would stand on one side for one set of issues and on another side for a different set of issues. And so that has been part of our reality. Historically, most, again, the break tends to also be on experience. So that Cuban-American Protestants and Catholics will tend to vote Republican, period. Mexican-American Protestants and Catholics will tend to vote more Democratic. And the other communities are the ones that are more mixed. In the, in the community, People that voted for Donald Trump were voting, and I know a lot who are very strong pro-immigration reform. Uh, yes, they want some they want some order and control, but they also want comprehensive immigration reform for those that are already here. Depending on how you ask the question, you get a very different kind of answer. They felt that as they weighed one thing against the other, that the issues of abortion and same-sex marriage weighed more heavily than the issues of immigration. Plus, some of them, like Sammy Rodriguez, were hoping that Donald Trump would have a better policy for, because I know Sammy well, were hoping that they would be able to convince Donald Trump to look at, especially that segment of the Republican Party that has always been more pro-immigrant, and that they would be able to convince them to work toward some form of a comprehensive immigration reform. And so they were hoping he would not be as anti-immigrant those who supported him. And I think some of them are now struggling with that. And my, my anecdotal impression, though, is that even though there are these pretty substantive differences among Hispanic Protestants and how they voted for, for or against Trump, there isn't uh, the level of animosity between the groups that voted for and against him as, the, I, as I see in white evangelicalism. For the most part, I think that's fair, because most, m most of, of the people that voted for Trump are not Carrying some of the other stuff that at times happens there is, you know, how what does what's the future of the United States look like? What what are the issues that you know those bigger kind of cultural issues? They're not carrying those, and so there hasn't been a strong. I mean, you'll find a few that that will speak very strongly and maybe almost as as strongly as some of the of, of the national leadership, uh, but most of them will not speak in those terms. And uh, but also you won't hear. The very strong uh, Democrat, either. You, know, you won't hear people, you know, just kind of carrying that flag and in your facing that flag, if you will. And so, as yet, the community it may it, it may divide because again, parts of the community have always been kind of on the other side. So that if you have Cubans and Mexican Americans, you may feel that tension more. But that's as much because of history as as, as has to do with the specifics of this moment. Yeah, one of the more impressive things that uh, I heard about after the election was uh, it was actually at Sammy Rodriguez's church in Sacramento. He immediately, from what I understand, uh, got his congregation together to meet and to pray together across political boundaries. Yep. It was specifically that meeting was designed to help people realize we're first and foremost brothers and sisters in Christ, and there's something that unites us more than our political division. And I didn't see 
again, this is all anecdotal. I haven't done a study of it, but I just didn't see anecdotally hardly any white church willing to do that. It was you were either one side or the other. Yeah, the church that I attend, I think, would tend to gravitate more in the other direction than Sammy's church might. But I work alongside leaders, uh, especially on issues of immigration reform, that would have voted for Donald Trump for the issues that that we've mentioned, but would still be working very strongly, and and Sammy's one of those people, uh, would still be working very strongly to try to to take the edge off some of the anti-immigrant rhetoric and to see uh, a comprehensive immigration reform out of the Trump administration. Juan, when we see issues like abortion and same-sex marriage, when I hear those topics, my initial instinct is to think like those are the main issues that the religious right cares about. And give me a sense of whether those issues are cared about because of this long legacy of the religious right or if these are issues that have just grassroots support level. As political issues, yes, maybe they have been framed by the religious right. But as issues about how the community perceives itself, those were there. They just didn't, ha- they, they would not have been flag-waving issues if it not for the religious right. But nonetheless, when the religious right brings them into the community, people go, oh yeah, yes, that we do, we do agree with that. So that, it, that those wouldn't have been the issues that would have started the conversation, if you will. But if, the, if those issues come onto the table, a large percentage of Latino evangelicals would go, yes, yes, we agree with that, and yes, this is important. I wanted to talk about some other maybe theological tensions that exist or other maybe if there's denominational splits, any other type of things that, you know, we at Christianity Today would be particularly interested in knowing what kind of like the hot button issues are for this community when it comes to faith. It's broad, but I'll stay with the with the larger group, and so um, so I'm, I'm I'm explaining. That. I'm going to stay with the Pentecostals and the Evangelicals more than with the mainline, though. Uh, I'm not trying to exclude them just because just because they're a larger group and it's a little easier to talk about them. The strong sense of conversion and of new life creates both a sense that God is present. There's a very strong sense of of God's presence. And so you'll see that amongst Latinos, including Catholic, especially the Charismatic and the Cursiistas, that will tend to have a much more, a stronger sense of God's actual presence and the Holy Spirit actually being present than the average American evangelical. I would argue than even the average American Pentecostal. And so that becomes one of the issues. There's a a much stronger historical spiritual dynamic. And, And you'll see that, especially in the immigrant generation, fades as Latinos become more Americanized. I think studies have demonstrated that. But that becomes a, a, a very important difference. The Latino church, especially the Latino Pentecostal church, serves an important function. Remember, we talked about the fact that most Latinos, especially Mexican-American, have lower educational levels. Well, if they join the average Anglo denomination, they'll never be ordained as pastors because they're never going to go through a master's program. They're not going to do all of these things that are required or expected of people to be ordained. But if you're a Pentecostal, you are ordained based on your giftedness. And so the Latino Protestant, especially Latino Pentecostal church, is often the only place where Latinos are in charge of their own structures. The only place where they 
set the rules for how they live their lives together. And so the only place where a Latino that has limited education can demonstrate that they are leaders and that they have the capacity for leadership, uh, but because education is not put as an automatic requirement for leadership. So you will find these churches that that are led by their own people, uh, class-wise. And so Latino Pentecostal churches are led by Latino Pentecostals of the same class and educational level as the people that they are leading. The part that we also have to remember is that Pentecostalism and, and most evangelical churches are free churches. And one of the, one of the distinctiveness, not, not so gr- wonderful distinctiveness, is division. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, standing, the standing joke in, in Latin America is that uh, Latino evangelicals uh, grow by division, not by multiplication. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of Pentecostal churches that don't belong to any specific denomination. It's hard to get those numbers really straight, but uh, a significant percentage of Latino Pentecostals uh, and Latin American Pentecostals would not be part of any clearly definable larger denomination. They will be part of networks of, of connectedness with other churches, but not not denominations in the way they've been historically understood in the United States. So that uh, a strong spiritual dynamic, a strong sense of community and of church's community, a strong sense of God's presence— but also a strong sense of our own leadership and also a strong sense of we support ourselves. Uh, one thing you will find amongst Latino Pentecostals, there was a Christianity Today article. Some of the people that were in it were students of mine where I say Latino Pentecostals never got the memo that you needed money to do mission. <laughs> uh, you know, the, and, and I'm glad it was, the memo probably went out in English and most of them couldn't read it. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the Latino Pentecostals in particular have taken very seriously that if God has changed me, I'm supposed to share that with others. I'm supposed to be part of God's mission in the world. And these kinds of churches don't tend to wait for the denomination to provide funding to do things. They do things with the money that they have. And they also tend to raise much more money so that if you have uh, a Latino Assemblies of God, a Latino Baptist, and a Latino Presbyterian church, all in the same neighborhood, people about the same, you know, about the same social class. I can almost guarantee you that, and that the Latino Pentecostal Church raises four or five times as much money as the Presbyterian Church, and twice as much money as the Baptists. Almost a given, and that's just how their theology developed. Pentecostalism, what was born out of revival amongst the poor, amongst the working class, who said God has called us. We don't have to depend on the others. Again, help me with this impression that I have. This would be one tension in the movement of what we might call theologically conservative uh, Latino Protestants. There does seem to be a move to increase the amount of education uh, Hispanics are getting and to, and to encourage, if not insist, that uh, pastors should at least have a, a bachelor's degree in Bible from a Bible school, if, if not seminary degree. How do you see that tension working itself out? That tension works out at several kinds of levels. Now, some denominations push into that, uh, but most of the Pentecostal denominations don't push real hard. But what does happen is that a Latino pastor often is seeking what I would call social accreditation. In other words, I'm in a community, and or for example, we share a building with an Anglo pastor, and let's be perfectly honest, that Anglo pastor does not see me as an equal because 
he or she has an MDiv, might have a DMIN, and I don't even have Bible Institute, yeah. or I have a couple years of Bible Institute. So we're even though my church may be five times their, the size of theirs, <laughs> right? But we're not considered equals because education weighs a lot, and so that a number of Latino leaders, out of their own initiatives, are saying, "I need to have a degree so that I can be considered, you know, that I can sit at this table." So I call that social accreditation. So they're going to school, they're going to seminary, not because their denomination requires it or not because they're preparing for ministry, but so that they can be accepted within the framing of of the larger community. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because they've done some recent studies as well, even among uh, upper middle class Anglos. Many of them actually don't get a whole lot out of their college degrees anymore, except kind of social acceptance in their part of the world. Yes. You can't really apply for any job that you'd want uh, if you were in that part of the world unless you have a at least a bachelor's. If now, and now it's almost you have to have a master's. So it operates, yeah, in other cultures as well. So I can, I can understand why a Latino pastor would want that. He wants to be a player at the table, and he's going to be more respected. I'm just wondering if maybe you can tell us the ways that you see that God is working in this community right now. I'm excited about the way the Holy Spirit manifests itself in the community both Protestant and Catholic even, that, that people are attentive in the midst of, especially, for example, the undocumented or those who are legal immigrants but are afraid that, that the situations have become very negative, how people are trusting that God is in the midst of all of this. I'm very hopeful when I see Latino Protestants uh, sharing their faith and also sharing their the, the spiritual dynamic beyond the walls of their church into the larger community, is I see the denominations that are most growing in the United States are those with a growing Latino presence. So the Assemblies of God, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Church of God, the Apostolic Faith people, these are the ones that are growing, and and of the very few that are, and they're growing because of a Latino presence and and a, a Latino spiritual dynamic. So those things give me a lot of hope. I see the young generation, a young generation that is is also again struggling with the fact that they they feel really comfortable marching with 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 if you will many of the issues that that are traditionally here in the United States put on the left side of the political spectrum and feel that they have to speak to these things but they speak to them as Christians uh, so that you know the Me Too movement uh, so that immigration reform are extremely important issues. And in fact, if some of them have walked away a bit from, from the abortion, same-sex mar- marriage situation has been because it's become so polarized and taken by the religious right that some of them just say, I agree with those things, but I'm not going to go there because it's too much about the religious right and not about the broader issues of society. So that I'm, I'm excited with the younger generation as I see them finding a space in the Latino church and way beyond the Latino church, so that I see Latino evangelicos in the broader church, and I go, that's that's our role, to bring what God has given us into the larger into the larger society. When I see Latino churches doing mission, all of these things make me extremely excited that God is doing good things and important things to the Latino Protestant community. Thank you so much, Juan, for this really great discussion. I'm sure it will provoke a lot of questions that people have. I know when I hear information like this, I just am even more curious in the topic. So people can give us feedback. We're on Twitter at CT Podcasts. 
We are also available over email. You can email us. We're at podcast at christianitytoday.com. I do want to take some time to remind everyone that this podcast is made possible by everyone who subscribes to Christianity Today magazine. Thank you, everyone who does this. We're currently have our November issue out right now, and we have a piece that's pretty well-timed to the election. It's called Love Your Political Frenemies. I don't know, Mark, did you have a chance to read over that one? Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's by uh, Judy Wu Dominic, and she she's just an up-and-coming writer, if, if not already well-established, of a person who reads the Bible with utmost seriousness and tries to take its admonitions with utmost seriousness. And I just think her article, Love Your Political Frenemies, you can pretty much tell what that's about. Uh, mm-hmm. And she just does a great job of reminding us that the love of Christ in our hearts has to extend beyond people who agree with us. But mm-hmm. She does it in a way that's very simple and powerful, so I appreciate her. Yeah, and there's a lot of really um, looking at the life of Jesus and who he picked for his disciples, you know, concrete details from this very eclectic group of people who would not really have hung out outside of their common affinity for Christ and even had trouble hanging out even when they were hanging out with Jesus and kind of uses that to to challenge us in terms of whom we associate with today. So if you'd like to read that article, again, I think it's a good one for this election week. You can do that by going to orderct.com slash quick to listen. That's orderct.com slash quick to listen. We will now move from here to Precious Moments, which is when everyone gets to share something that has brought them joy this week. And Mark, rock and roll. Go ahead. Yeah, I was just spent a weekend in Dallas with my sister, and that's especially a blessing for me because I didn't know I had a sister until the year 2000 when I got a call from a detective while I was watching the Super Bowl saying, there's a woman here who claims to be your sister. Would you be what? willing to talk to her? You got a call during the Super Bowl? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that second so, was not watching the Super Bowl. Obviously not. So knowing that my mother's troubled past, which was quite troubled, to uh, which she admitted to and acknowledged, she didn't acknowledge, there were rumors that she might have had another a child somewhere along the way, but nothing firm. So it didn't strike me as uh, completely shocking that this might be the case. Anyway, we ended up phoning each other, talking, and then she came to Chicago. And as soon as she was walking toward me from at the airport, I looked at her and said, oh, there's my mom. So there was no doubt in my mind that this was my mother's daughter. So uh, so we've been enjoying uh, getting to know each other for the last 18 years. She's a delightful woman, very successful career in, uh, in Dallas, working for Roger Staubach's real estate company. Um, I also had worked with two senators earlier in her life. And she was given up uh, to a friend by my mother when she was an infant, and she had lived kind of a rough life in Oklahoma growing up, but managed to, through God's grace, she'll be the first to admit, turn things around and lead a successful life. And she's just a wonderful woman. So it's great. It's, it is a precious, it is a precious moment whenever I get to spend time with her. All right. Where can people find you outside of this? I published something called the Galley Report. Uh, that's G-A-L-L-I Report, which can be found at Christianity Today slash the Galley Report. I link to stories, make comments, and most people seem to appreciate that. So if you think you might want to do that, Please subscribe. All right, Juan, what's up for you? Well, I think the most precious moment also happened in Texas about a week ago. <laughs> An uncle of mine passed away uh, from uh, from Texas, and he had been involved long term ministry on the border in the U.S. Uh, the Texas Tamaulipas border, and it, it was a time to celebrate his life. I was only able to spend twenty four hours in Texas. I had to fly in, fly out very quickly. 
but just to be with cousins that I hadn't seen some in 30, 40 years, to be with uh, extended families, to hear the stories about how God used my uncle and, and how his influence continues beyond. That was a precious moment, just to be with the family, to cry, but also to celebrate a life well lived. And to go back to Corpus Christi, where my grandparents are buried, and spend some time, just a few hours, uh, reconnecting with family. And I blog in Spanish on Protestante Digital, which is the largest Spanish language Protestant portal in the world, Caminando Entre el Pueblo, Walking with the People. And uh, you're welcome to join me in Spanish. I do post some of those in English occasionally. So I'll usually link them through uh, uh, Twitter. Juan F. Mar, and also to Facebook. So that's where you can find me. Usually, I'm, I'm usually spending more time in Spanish than in English at this point. Remind us of the name of your book again. The Story of Latino Protestants in the United States. All right. Okay, my precious moment is shockingly football-related. People know on here I don't usually love football unless baseball season has ended, which it did. And so on Sunday, one of my friends, I was trying to convince him to go for a walk, and he said that he wanted to go to a bar that had a fireplace. So I sent him a list of that someone had put together of Chicago bars that have fireplaces. And my first impression when I walked into the bar was, oh, wow, they have live music here. And this was Sunday afternoon when it happened. And we soon discovered that we were in a New Orleans Saints bar that had a brass band that played every time the Saints scored or during, they played all of halftime. They played all during the commercial breaks. They were, it was probably the most diverse bar that I've been to in Chicago in terms of generation and race and ethnicity. After the Saints won, which was a fantastic game, everyone danced for five minutes and sang this song that apparently is the song that you sing after the Saints win. And my friend, who is so Midwestern, was like, what? You know, there's just one win, guys. And I'm like, this is New Orleans culture, okay? Like, you don't need a huge reason to just, like, be thrilled and ecstatic enough to dance and sing. And that was definitely what was happening while we were there. So that was a just, like, extremely fun experience. And also, the people that were sitting next to the fireplace that he wanted to sit, they, like, left five minutes after we got there. So we got to sit next to the fireplace, too. It felt very serendipitous and somewhat magical. So that was definitely my precious moment. People can find me on Twitter at M-E-P-A-Y-N-L. That is it for us this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of Quick to Listen. This podcast is produced by myself, Richard Clark, and Cray Allred. Today's episode of Quick to Listen is brought to you in part by ChristianBook.com, a huge selection of Christian books, Bibles, gifts, music, and more, all in one place and always at great values christianbook.com everything christian for less you can find this podcast wherever you get your podcasts including apple podcasts and spotify if you want to help out the podcast please do so by going to apple podcasts and rating and reviewing the show thank you everyone and have a great week Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com/equip.